Hi, everyone, and thank you again for joining us on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care and the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. I'm David Werho, and I'm really excited about this edition of News Talk, where we talk about relevant topics in pediatric cardiac critical care. We have a very special guest, Ram Kumar Subramanian, a pediatric cardiac surgeon and a scientist at Children's Hospital Los Angeles and the University of Southern California. He's the chair of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons Congenital Heart Surgery Database Task Force, and he's going to be talking to us about some of the changes that are coming down the pipeline for all of us in the cardiac ICU, cardiologists, surgeons, programs, and also patients and families. I have my co-hosts, Jill and Sadie. Do you want to both introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Jill Zender. I'm a nurse practitioner in the cardiac ICU at UT Southwestern Children's Health in Dallas, Texas. And hi, I'm Sadie Rodriguez. I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. And I am David Werho, as you all know, a pediatric cardiac intensivist at UC San Diego and Rady Children's Hospital. Thank you, Ron, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Again, um, I want to just make it clear that I'm going to give you my opinions on the database and how it's interpreted. Of course, for full transparency, these are my personal opinions, and these do not reflect the official opinions of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for having me, David. Thank you. Well, just to get started, because I know our listeners vary between being, you know, very experienced and seasoned cardiac intensivists, cardiologists, and surgeons, all the way to brand new trainees and nurses at the bedside, and maybe even some patients and families. So can you kind of explain to us, what is the STS congenital heart surgery database? What is uh, the purpose? And talk to us a little bit also about what the stat categories are. What does that mean? Great. Thank you. So the STS congenital heart surgery database is part of a a database effort that the Society of Thoracic Surgeons started many years ago. The congenital heart surgery database collects procedure-based data. So it's primarily a surgical procedure-driven database. It has incredible penetrance. Over 98% of the institutions and over 98% of the surgeries that are undertaken in North America are captured by the database itself. So it's a very robust database, including information on um, several 10,000s of cardiac surgical procedures, particularly pediatric and congenital cardiac surgery procedures that are undertaken across North America. Virtually all the centers, certainly all the large volume centers contribute data. These data are then centrally collected and analyzed And the analytics is what provides the ability to risk assess, risk stratify, and come up with risk models in a way in which we can analyze currently mortality as the primary endpoint in the database. Of course, we're very interested in morbidity outcomes as well as uh, length of stay outcomes. All of these have been looked at. So we use complex and very strong valued statistical methodologies to predict what we call an expected mortality rate. So it is a risk model that takes into account a series of variables, which include things like patient's weight, age, prematurity, pre-op risk factors going into the operation, non-cardiac anatomic abnormalities they may have, genetic syndromes and genetic abnormalities they have, the procedure they undergo, and use all of that to come up with an estimated risk of mortality and compare that to the institution's observed mortality for those patients and come up with what is called as an O to E ratio, observed to expected mortality ratio. That's sort of how the database works. The database is primarily 
a quality initiative perspective. It's important for programmatic improvement, for programs to allocate resources as they see fit, and for interprogrammatic education, for each of us to learn best practices so we all deliver the best care possible for our children. In that regard, there is this mortality categorization called the STAT mortality categorization. STAT mortality categorization is undertaken basically to allow risk stratification. Again, it's not a risk model. It just allows to stratify procedures based on their mortality that is observed in the database. So two things are really important in understanding there. One is that it's primarily driven by mortality, not by complexity. A really difficult to do operation that is associated with a lower mortality will have a lower stat score and vice versa. The stat score basically stratifies procedures into five categories. Stat one, group of categories that have the lowest predicted mortality and stat five, procedures that have highest mortality. These are statistically driven, empirically driven scores, and they are set up such that each category has as much intra-category homogeneity and inter-category heterogeneity. Thank you. That was a great explanation. Can you also just talk to us about how this evolved? Um, Because obviously public reporting and congenital heart surgery wasn't always a thing. And so talk to us a little bit about that journey up until this point. Yeah, uh, it's been an incredible journey. It really has matured into what I now think is an incredible tool to assess outcomes and transparently report them to all our constituents. So the data collection form is the starting point. So there is a, a series of questions that we ask about the patient who underwent the procedure. These are triggered when the patient undergoes a procedure. So again, that's the first caveat. It does not include the entire universe of patients with congenital heart disease. The trigger point is patients with congenital heart disease who undergo a pediatric cardiac surgical intervention. The data collection form asks a series of questions which started off with clinician insight on what is relevant in determining the outcome. Every three years, we go through a data collection form upgrade process that process brings the data that we are collecting up to date and make it contemporary. For example, a data collection form upgrade is coming up in June, July of 2022, this summer. This data collection form for the first time is going to include variables of adults who are undergoing congenital heart surgery procedures. A a separate internal module within the congenital heart surgery database is being introduced. So that's one evolution, what kind of data we collect. The next evolution is how are the data collected and submitted? As you're all probably aware, the ST has recently switched to a new platform called the IQVIA platform, which is a platform that collects the information. It's a data warehouse where the individual participants send the data to the data warehouse. So the individual institutions that do the procedure have what I think is the greatest resource for the database, which is our data managers who diligently collect information, send it to the data warehouse. The data warehouse recently changed to IQVIA. IQVIA allows a a little bit more interactive platform where individual institutions can have more timely and continuous ability to look at their own outcomes. The last piece is the risk analysis outcome. So these data are then analyzed by statistical programs, which actually recalculate the logistic regression equation after every data harvest. So routinely, 
except with an exception for the last one and a half years. Routinely, the congenital heart surgery database has two harvests, one in the spring, one in the fall. We're going to go back to that schedule starting 2022. Each harvest includes four years worth of surgical data. These data are collected and statistically analyzed to come up with a risk model for that contemporary data set. And that risk model is then applied to get observed and expected mortality ratios based on which outcome reports are provided to individual institutions. And the last point I will say is, not just is the risk model done every harvest and every analysis, we recently undertook major projects within the database to see how better we can qualify these outcomes. Two examples. One, we did the so-called stat score revisit analysis. So the original stat scores were developed in 2009 based on what were contemporary outcomes. So in 2020, we published a revision paper that looked at more contemporary outcomes for the last 10 years and revised the stat scores to reflect state-of-the-art empirically driven outcomes for the current congenital heart surgery database volume. Similarly, an important analysis was undertaken to see if adding diagnoses to the procedures when we do risk analysis, how does that impact outcome? And then in that same analysis, we compared the current logistic regression equations that are used by the SDS against some complex machine learning models to see if there is a radically different way to come up with these models for an analyzing risk of mortality outcomes. I'm very happy to report, and these papers are now in the process of being published, that these have proven to us incredible veracity, great fidelity in the current models we're using for risk analysis. At the same time, important opportunities for improvement. So I wanna leave your listeners knowing that this is a living, breathing environment where the risk model analysis includes some important statistical software, but at the same time is contemporary and constantly reevaluated. That's really incredible. I didn't, I didn't realize how um, frequent the reassessments are. And um, I love how you said it's like a livable contemporary breathing thing because it, it really is. It's a living reflection of the current surgical practices. And if I can say, maybe you can comment, um, especially with your comment about adding in diagnoses and things, how much do you think it reflects like other current, you know, peri-op care on a medical side? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a crucial point you're bringing up and we revisit that. I'll give you an example um, for that uh, question that you asked. Initially, one of the pre-op factors we considered was only invasive mechanical ventilation in the perioperative period, especially in the preoperative period. So now we're realizing that there are a lot of centers that have gone away from invasive mechanical ventilation, but they're providing non-invasive mechanical ventilatory support. So at the previous DCF upgrade, data collection form upgrade, we said, you know what? We're going to ask separate questions, invasive mechanical ventilation versus non-invasive mechanical ventilatory support. Because we know that it is important for the data collection form and the database to stay contemporary. As practices improve, as practices modify, we really need to stay up to speed, particularly with respect to perioperative care, because these impact outcomes. Um, with such a frequent uh, kind of reassessment of the data and information, how significantly does this impact how um, cases are categorized or um, does it change frequently? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So the stat category, which is the risk stratification, has only changed once. So it was originally in 2009 and in 2020, the stat category changed. 
what goes into the risk model remains fairly same. It usually doesn't change by that much. But the actual risk model itself, in terms of what, what is the quotient, what is the constant, what is the predictive model, that changes with every harvest because the patient's data that are coming in also changes with every harvest. Since we're talking about the stat category update, because you know my entire career I was familiar with the old stat categories, but now everything's going to be new. Uh, just for our listeners, when are the new stat categories going to start to be applied to the harvests? And what are the major or most notable changes that you all noticed when you recategorized everything? Yeah. So the new stat categories um, were already published in the World Journal of Pediatric and Congenital Heart Surgery with um, Dr. Marshall Jacobs, who was one of our previous task force chairs as the primary author. So the data are out there, and that's always been the databases approach. And that is, we do the analytics, we send it out for peer review, we make sure that it stands the veracity of, of independent peer review and gets published. Now the task force has approved that it'll be utilized for our risk um, modeling for the future. And we anticipate that the new stat categories will be implemented starting with the spring harvest of 2022. So there is the March harvest close date. When we analyze those data following the March harvest close date, we will be utilizing the new stat categories. What, What do we think are going to be different? There are some important differences. Certain procedures have changed stat categories. So let me tell you quickly what that means. What that means is based on the observed mortality, every procedure gets a stat score. That stat score is a number between 0.1 and 5, 0.1 being the lowest and 5 being the highest stat score. After that, statistically, we determine how this 0.1 to 5 procedures are going to be categorized within five categories. So what we saw in the, in the new stat score, stat 2020 scores, is that some procedures have changed stat categories. Some procedures that used to be stat three have now become stat two. Others that were stat four have become stat five. So these changes will start to take effect in March. And what that means to the data managers and the individual institution is that when they start putting stuff into the DCF, they're going to see that the stat category for that procedure is going to be different than what they've been used. That's one. The second and important difference is we came up with a set of new combination codes. In other words, it's very common in congenital heart surgery for one patient to have three or four procedures. If three or four procedures are performed on the same individual, in most instances, with some exceptions, the original rule was that the procedure with the highest stat mortality score will contribute that stat score to the composite procedure. When we read our stat analysis, we diligently looked at all these composites and we identified a subset of composite procedures where their observed mortality was higher than the mortality that was attributed by the highest individual procedure. So we've now separated them out, given them their own stat score, their own stat category. In other words, we want really the stat categorization to be contemporary and to actually reflect the practice that is in vogue in the community at this time. So we're going to see all these changes, as you can probably tell. I'm really excited about the new stat score, and I'm hoping that it'll it'll make our risk model even more relevant and valuable to everybody that's involved. It's going off of the new stat categories and recategorization and cleaning up the model. What are your thoughts about as 
medical providers um, inter interpreting or using that data to go forward and taking care of patients and in asking research questions from the database? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so the first step is to understand that the stat categories and the stat scores are different from the risk model. I think it's, it's common for people to conflate the two. The risk model allows risk assessment, allows people to do a risk analysis, adjusted outcomes, risk-adjusted outcomes. The second side is risk-stratified outcomes, which is what the stat categories do. The stat categories allow us to classify outcomes based on the categorization. Now, the stat categories are a part of the risk adjustment model, but at the risk of getting into the statistics of it, they are only what we call as an auxiliary variable. That is, they help us in certain aspects of the risk model in risk adjustment, but it is not entirely as though a stat category determines the risk model completely. So that's the first step. So how do programs utilize it? I think. I think the important things for program to understand is that STAT is a mortality risk score. It just says the predicted mortality for this score based on what we've seen in the database is this. For a program, really, that should just be one part of a whole risk assessment, right? What we don't want to see is risk aversion. That is, what we don't want to see is people saying, oh, this procedure has a lower stat score, that's unfair, so let's revisit how we approach this. That's not the idea. The idea here is not to penalize a program. The idea here is to say, folks, listen, it looks like, based on contemporary data, this is the associated mortality for this procedure. But at the end of the day, these are statistics. Statistics are for populations. You can extrapolate only so much for an individual. So I think that's what we as clinicians should understand, and I think most of us already do, is sit down and then say, huh, it's interesting that a procedure with such a high complexity has such a low stat score. But regardless, we're going to try to see how best we can take care of this particular patient in front of us so this patient has the best outcome. Can you talk to us a little bit about how um, you could expect families to interpret this data? And then also how um, us providers at the bedside, the bedside nurses, nurse practitioners, intensivists and cardiologists can help parents understand and interpret this data? It's a great question, Jill. It's an incredible question because these are obviously very scientific, medically technical uh, categorizations in the stat category. So even for our most educated, very knowledgeable parents and families, it's not entirely obvious what stat categories mean to them. One of the common conversations we have with families who look at publicly reported data are, wait, it says the stat three outcome is this. My child is having blank procedure. How does that fit into your stat category? So here is how we try to have that conversation with the parents. I will preface that by saying, obviously, it varies a little depending on the center, the disease process, and the family, because different families come to us um, from a different demographic or educational background, and we sort of have to tweak it a little bit to meet the family's needs. But what we've told them is as follows. We've said, look, these stat categories are just stratified ways to look at approach, to look at outcome. For your child's procedure, this is the stat category it falls in. But let me tell you, that in your child's individual instance, the risk model will tell us 
that the fact that your child has this and this and this that goes along with it is going to impact your child's outcome more. For example, I'll give you a, you know, one that most of us will relate to, complete common AV canal defect. So one conversation I go to them and have is, look, complete common AV canal is a STAT-3 procedure, but we know that a child with trisomy 21 that's undergoing complete common AV canal defect likely has a slightly more favorable outcome than a non-trisomy 21 child going through and having complete common AV canal defect. A child with heterotaxy is probably going to have more morbidity events than a child that doesn't have heterotaxy. So we sort of allow them to see the bigger picture and understand that STAT is just one tool that allows us to risk stratify outcomes. That, that's been our approach. The one thing we've done programmatically, Jill, and, and I think this has helped us a lot, is all of us sit down and talk about this a lot. I mean, we, the surgeons, cardiologists, intensivists, nurses, anesthesiologists, sit down and discuss the various databases and what they mean and how they provide more tools for us as clinicians in our armamentarium to have intelligent conversations with patients and families. And that's really helped us a lot. Thanks, Ram. That was a really great explanation. Um, I think my next question is going to be about how, and you may not be able to answer this question, but how do we foresee that public reporting is going to change in, in you know, the contemporary era, especially as programs evolve and, you know, in a lot of different lesions actually evolve away from surgery and more towards catheter-based therapies. For instance, uh, here we almost exclusively do PDA stents um, and it's actually very rare that we would do a central shunt or a, a BT shunt in a lot of our patients who need augmented pulmonary blood flow. So I, I was just wondering how, how do you foresee that changing in doing a programmatic quality assessment if we're just looking at surgical patients? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm gonna give you a two-part answer. The first part is about non-surgical interventions um, that you're talking about, as an example, PDA stenting instead of a systemic to pulmonary shunt. Unfortunately, in its current version, the Society of Thoracic Surgeons Congenital Heart Surgery Database is a surgical database. Like I said, the trigger happens when a patient undergoes a cardiac surgical procedure. So the tetralogy child that gets a PDA stent will not have any data in the STS congenital heart surgery database. Ideally for something like that, we would need to have a composite database that is inception cohort driven. In other words, we would need a tetralogy database where interventionalists put all the data on patients who undergo ductal stenting or RVOT stent. Non-interventional cardiologists put all the data about babies that go home on a beta blocker versus those that go home with no uh, medications at all. And surgeons put in data about those that undergo palliative procedures versus a direct complete repair. That's sort of an inception cohort. A lot of us have talked about it. We're trying to do it. You can imagine that that's a behemoth effort. And so it hasn't taken off because of the resource limitations, David, but that ultimately is where we as a specialty should mature because we just owe it to our patients. It's not about whether BT shunt or complete repair are our two options right now. We have a ton of options and we should be able to evaluate all of them head to head. Now, moving to the public reporting piece, those of you that already know me will know, I, like many of you, am a very strong believer in transparency. At the end of the day, we owe it to our patients, parents, and families to transparently tell them where our outcomes are. We have nothing to hide. We owe it to them. The difficulty comes 
like the question Jill asked before, is how do we communicate this so we can reach the maximum number of patients, parents, and family using verbiage and terminology that makes sense to them? That's been difficult. You know, we've gone through various iterations. Do we just say, as expected? Do we use pictures? Do we use diagrams? Do we use colors? And if you see the model across the pond in, in United Kingdom has been different from the model we've used, it's been different from other models that have been tested and tried. So where we landed, at least in my own institution, is that every institution should remain committed to transparency and find a way for the institution to be able to publicly report that outcomes. For example, we would say, these are our hypoplast left heart syndrome outcomes. We're no longer talking about this is our Norwood outcomes. These are our hypoplast outcomes. These many of them undergo palliative care from birth. These many undergo hybrid procedures. These many undergo Norwoods. Oh, by the way, we continue to follow them. These many undergo Glens. These many survive to five years. Those kinds of, like the SVR trial looked at only Norwood procedures. We've just said, look, as an institution, we're going to look at all hypoplasts and we're going to use our website to publicly tell everyone these are our hypoplast outcomes. I think that's where we should go because for, to unite all the institutions together is a massive resource effort. But if each individual institution went to saying, look, we're going to talk about disease-based, all-comer patients and provide our transparent outcomes, I think it'll go a long way, not just for transparency, but it'll also go a long way for our parents and families to make educated decisions. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think it's like a nice way to reflect and encompass the heterogeneity that can be within like a single disease process. I, I love how you earlier kept saying, this is just one tool. <laughs> it's just one tool, you know, because I think that goes along with the transparency that you're talking about. Like we have to remember that it's um, one thing to look at a database and a piece of paper and another thing to come to the bedside and look at the patient as a whole with all their comorbidities and all of their um, diagnoses and within the spectrum, right? That is like the second part within the spectrum of their disease process. I really appreciate how you have that sort of holistic view and you just, I love it. You just keep repeating it. It's, it's a really refreshing reminder. I think there's so much anxiety, right? Sometimes it gets like put, pent up into these scores and into these databases. And it's really refreshing to have the chair of the task force be so um, broad, um, likes to have such a broad perspective. Um, so how families uh, responded to the idea of public reporting and what feedback have you gotten from families and how does this factor into how STS continues to evolve? Yeah, good question. Um, ultimately, we all need to understand who our target audience is. And there is no target audience for outcome reporting that does not include our parents, patients, and families, right? If we don't get that input and we if we don't meet them where they are and what kind of information they want, we failed in a fundamental mission. So the STS and, and all other organizations have been acutely aware of the role that patients and families and parents play in this entire process. There have been several advocacy groups who have been actively involved in shaping the thought. Many of them have lent their voice to the transparency uh, initiative. They've had a lot of conferences, meetings where they've brought people, including leaders, scientists, physicians, CEOs, and sat them around the table and said, folks, this is what we need. I mean, at the end of the day, this is what transparency means to patients and families. And that has really shaped 
how we're moving forward with our efforts to publicly report outcomes. In fact, the Society of Thoracic Surgeons has been incredibly um, interested in including parents. And what I do know is that as part of some of the recent changes that are coming to the congenital heart surgery um, database itself, the database task force and the workforce in the STS has included as members to these subcommittees, parents from these advocacy organizations. They have as much a seat at the table where they sit down and then say, great, great doctors. This is good what you're all doing, but hey, listen to us. We want to know, is this safe for our child? We want to know how does the information that you put up on your website, how does that matter to my child? The reason, Jill, this is so important, the reason this is crucially important is because no public reporting, no outcomes reporting by any institution or organization is going to answer the question, what is right for my child? That question with the current available methods cannot be answered, right? So it's important for parents who come to these meetings to bring that perspective to the meetings, but also take it back to the parents to say, listen, the goal of all this public reporting is to paint outcomes with broad brushes. It will not answer the question for my 2.4 kilogram child with this syndrome and this disease process, is this institution the correct institution? We'll never answer that question. So I think that's where, Joe, it's a two-way street. We as providers need to be able to tell the parents what they need to make an intelligent decision, but not leave them with a shroud of secrecy in our outcomes or with this wrong opinion that if you have this disease, this is what is best for your child. We're not at a point where we can provide prescriptive reports like that. So parents have been crucial. I'm so proud at how they've come to us with solutions. They've come to us saying, hey, this is what we want to see. Let us help you help us. So there's a great community. And I only think together, we're going to do great things moving forward. That's so awesome to hear. I mean, truly, it's, you know, not every patient's family or parents has the resources to truly pick where their child would get the best care. But I think that the emphasis on transparency and um, just just truly being transparent, I'm sure probably has to give families some sort of reassurance in what is likely the worst time of their life to know that they're telling me everything that I need to know, everything that I need to hear so I can trust what they're saying going forward. Yeah, I love hearing how uh, the families are impacting the evolution of this, um, you know, public reporting and the the database and everything. I I have a question along those lines because obviously mortality is important and that kind of is always the headline whenever there's um, the data harvests, but I don't know that that's necessarily the only thing that families are worried about anymore, especially I'm sure between the 2009 and the current stat categories, the differential in mortality between stat one and five is probably a lot smaller than it used to be. So I wonder what are the other outcomes that you think families have brought to STS saying like, yes, I care about mortality, but I also care about my kid you know, you know, reaching these developmental milestones or going to kindergarten on time. Um, are there other things that um, families have brought to STS that are going to be incorporated into the public reporting? Yeah, absolutely. So there's both short-term and long-term needs that the families have brought to the STS and to many other organizations for that um, in that regard. So let me take those two separately. 
you're absolutely correct. The mortality signal is actually becoming less and less and less differentiated. The overall mortality for all congenital heart surgery in the STS database is in the neighborhood of 3% right now. That's great. I mean, that's something we, we really need to be proud of, that we're able to take care of these complex children with such low mortality. But what that also means is for the statistician, the discriminatory capability becomes really small if we use mortality as our only endpoint. So with full credit to Dr. Pasquale from Michigan, she led this analysis where they came up with a composite score, which included the mortality metric, but it also included a morbidity metric and length of stay metric. So we picked what we thought were the top eight morbidity events, post-operative morbidity events that can happen for a child after they underwent a congenital heart surgery procedure. And the length of stay, which as you can imagine is a continuous variable, the duration of time they spent in the hospital post-operatively. And she did some outstanding analyses and was able to show us that not only is there an increased signal with this composite metric, but still the currently available regression models are able to accurately come up with a risk-adjusted outcome for this composite metric, just like they can for the mortality metric. So that's the short term. You know, whether the, the database and all the other reporting is going to go towards this composite metric or not, I don't know yet, but that certainly is one thing we can do for the short term. The second thing that the, that the parents have asked us is a little bit more difficult to achieve, and that's the longitudinal outcomes. So the question is, what is the long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes in a neonate that underwent a on-pump circulatory arrest operation? What are they going to do when they're in sixth grade? How many of them are going to have anxiety disorder? How many of them are going to require long-term special care? What do these high-risk infants look like when they are seven, eight years old? The congenital heart surgery database of the SDS isn't set up to be a longitudinal database because it's a surgical procedure, procedure triggered database. So we don't have those kinds of data to be able to say, what does this patient look like when she or he is eight years old? But that's where I think we can take the input of the other databases that are coming together and potentially come up with a more composite outcomes that are not just for the hospitalization, but for the lifetime of the child. That's a more laudable goal. It's sort of like the inception cohort. It's resource intensive. I want it to happen, but I don't know how soon that's going to happen. Well, it's great to hear how forward thinking you are and how all of these things are being taken into account. In your opinion, everything that we have stated with the STS database, looking at risk of mortality and how we've been discussing the evolution of medicine, trying to look at the patient as a whole patient, quality of life um, and other comorbidities. How would you, I guess, use this tool um, to evaluate overall quality of the programs with this being one piece of the larger puzzle? Yeah, that's a very important question. The overall quality of a program is determined by so many different things. And the STS congenital heart surgery database provides one important, but not universal, right? It's an important tool, but not the only tool. It's mortality driven, primarily for surgical procedures. So that's, that's an important part of understanding quality, but that's just one part. So I think the first way I would say the STS congenital heart surgery database can be utilized is in utilizing the mortality statistics as part of quality assessment. But remember, there is a lot more to the database than just mortality. Mortality is what is risk adjusted coming out of the STS analyses. 
But the database lends itself to be utilized by individual institutions for multiple other QI protocols. I mean, one of the protocols we at Children's Hospital Los Angeles were able to undertake with our own internal STS database, for example, is post-operative feeding of neonates. How many neonates are able to go home fully orally fed? How many of them require nasoenteral tube to be fed? How many of them require a surgical feeding tube to be fed? These may not be database endpoints that the STS risk adjusts for, but programs can use all of these for so many other quality measures, wound infection, how often are antibiotics administered within the time period that they are expected to be administered into? This tool, the STS database, allows individual participants to pick off whatever portion they want and use it in any way they can. And I think that's where the success of databases comes in, is allowing institutions to mold them in whichever way, form, or fashion they need for their own internal quality and process improvement, while at the same time, benchmarking their outcomes to national outcomes with respect to mortality for pediatric heart surgery procedures alone. So everybody uses it their way. And I think ultimately we all aim for superior quality and we're gonna use whatever data we have to help us to get to that goal. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ram. It was really exciting to hear about all the changes coming down from the STS congenital heart surgery database and public reporting, and just really how we're all continuing to evolve together as a field. It's not something we talk about enough in the cardiac ICU. So I really appreciate you joining us on the PCICS podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you to all our listeners for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song I Don't Know by Grapes was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.